Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. We're going to continue reading the passage that I will be uh, preaching on this evening. If you have your Bibles, turn uh, with me to Psalm 37 and follow along as I read. If you want to borrow the Bible that we have in the pew, you can turn to page 466 in the pew Bible. Psalm 37, I've already read uh, the first eight verses, so I'm going to pick up at verse 10. I read the first, uh, I'm sorry, nine verses during the uh, call to worship. We're going to pick up at verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy to slay those whose way is upright. But their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arm of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows, but he does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging, begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. So turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, and he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. So wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will, you will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. And though I sought him, he could not be found." Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future 
for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. It's filled with promises. It's highly relevant, not just in David's day, but today. Lord, we need this word. We need this reminder. We need your word to clarify our perspectives. We need your word to help us to repent from wrong thinking and to realign our heart and our attitude to the reality of your reign and your power and your goodness. And so, Lord, we pray that this evening as we just briefly look through this passage and discuss what it says and what it means and how it applies, that you would refresh your people to live in a time that is also marked by wickedness abounding, that we might be wise and that we might have the, re- the, the resources we need to be equipped to live well. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 37, uh, it's just another psalm that we're going to walk through. We've been walking through the psalms the past couple of weeks. And uh, I chose Psalm 37 because I think it's a needed reminder of, of how to live or how we should live when we see the wicked flourish, whether that's economically or politically or socially or, or individually or as a worldly force. Um, psalm 37 is actually an acrostic poem. So every section begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you might say that this is the ABCs of how to live during what appears to be increasingly wicked times. Uh, It's an appropriate psalm to read as we take stock of the craziness of our own culture. And uh, without going into too many details, I just want you to pause for a minute and think about what, what causes you to fret or worry about what's happening in our culture today? What keeps you up late at night? What keeps you tuned into the radio and the news? What turns your stomach? I don't know about you, but for me, there's a couple things that are turning my stomach, right? The indoctrination of, of our students, particularly elementary students, into a sexual ethic that promotes self-mutilation and chemical castration of minors, a sexual uh, education that really transcends anything I learned in health class growing up, grooming children to experiment with lust, to celebrate and nurture that lust with increased access to diverse sexual content. We have euphemisms and manipulation of language abounding to justify evil and hypocrisy and double standards. We see people making science political and then declaring political ideology real science. We see people intentionally ignoring inconvenient evidence. We see people boldly declaring that the the nuclear family must be disrupted to establish a better social order. We see people targeting political enemies using our government intelligence community. I mean, we just see a lot of things. Parents labeled as domestic terrorists, mobs who are out there burning cities, Mobs who are declaring as well, 
presently that killing of babies is not just a moral good, but a sacred right. A public square that is interested in policing speech and race relations that have just gotten worse year over year over year. Suicides up, homicides up in amazing numbers. It just reminds me of what Benjamin Franklin said, the country's going to the dogs. That was Benjamin Franklin. You know, while the challenges we face in our culture are dressed in new garb, the underlying problem is and always has been the same. The brokenness of humanity due to our sinfulness. The sinfulness of humanity is ever-present. Just when you think we're going to overcome it with better social programs, improved education, and higher standards of living, sin returns and causes a, a huge mess. And so Psalm 37 is written for people as they're looking at certain powers having great success, particularly when those powers seem to be wicked and unjust. How do we make sense of this? And so Psalm 37 is going to help us. The psalm is a beautiful piece of poetry that gives us the ABCs of how to live wisely when the wicked seem to be abounding and succeeding. So a couple things, I want to look at what, what the psalm tells us to do, why we should do it, and how we should do it. And then also we're going to look at what the psalm tells us to refrain from, what we should not do, why we shouldn't do it, and how we have the power not to do that. So what, how, and why, what not, why not, and how not. First, we're going to start with what not to do. Look at verse 1. First, we're not to fret because of evildoers or be envious of wrongdoers. And then skip down to verse 7. Fret not over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. Refrain from evil and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. And when we see evildoers winning, when we see uh, people who are uh, immoral and unjust in positions of power or people who are living unrighteous lives, getting away with it, we're tempted to feel envious. Has it been for nothing that I've not cheated or that I've done the right thing? We're tempted to, to envy those who have power and success and reputation. And I think we all struggle with that. And the psalm is saying, if that's your temptation, guard your heart. And he says just right up front, just don't go there. Don't feed it. Fret not. And then he says, why? Why not fret? Why not be envious? Why not get angry? He says, refrain from anger and forsake it. Fret not, for it tends only to evil. Now, this type of fretting, worrying, envying of what the evil have, says, opens a door to evil. Now, there's an important distinction that must be made. A lot of times people come to the Bible and they think the Bible doesn't have much emotional depth. And so when it talks about anger, it talks about anger as sort of like this monolith. You either get angry or you don't get angry. But that's, the Bible is emotionally intelligent. There's <laughs> not all anger is the same, right? And so an important distinction needs to be made here. The psalmist is not condemning all anger. Righteous anger is good. It is good and right to be angry at wickedness and the, and the terrible things that they do and the ways they defile themselves and other. God has righteous anger, and such anger is rooted in truth and love. The reason why God 
is angry is because he loves his creation. He loves his people and he gets angry at those things that destroy his creation and that defile his people. So like two sides of a coin, righteous anger is the flip side of perfect love. We get angry at that, that that threatens the thing we love that's good. So he's not talking about that type of anger. The psalmist is warning us against a particular type of anger or wrath that we must refrain from. Because though it might feel right to get angry, it feels good, it feels like we're being faithful, this type of anger actually contains seeds of faithlessness, of wrong thinking and wrong belief, and for that reason, it tends only toward evil. Well, how so? It's because it has a shared assumption with the evil. See, the assumption underlying all wickedness and all evil is that God is not really God. I get to do what I want, and God doesn't need to be taken seriously. There's no fear of God among the wicked. Sinful people assume that God just doesn't care what they do or doesn't see what they do because if he cared, he would have judged it by now and they would be corrected. That's the assumption of evil. They, they don't think God is going to balance the scales because God's not taken seriously. And such sinful thoughts, they're, they're not stagnant. As you, as you get away with doing the wrong thing, you're emboldened such that you go from from doubting God's going to be just, doubting God's going to balance the scales, to sort of mocking him, because now you can just do whatever you want and your heart is hardening. And the psalmist warns that when believers fret about the success and comfort of the wicked, when believers become envious of wrongdoers, functionally they are beginning to share a similar underlying assumption that evil wrongdoers have, namely that God is not to be taken seriously. Maybe God's not as good and powerful as he claimed. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he isn't ruling over all things. Maybe he won't judge evil as it deserves. And the psalmist warns against entertaining such sentiments. The anger of the righteous may rightly hate when the wicked prosper, but if you fret too much over it, that anger can twist and become anxious and envious over the prosperity of the wicked, and it begins to take on a toxic assumption because you start to think, God, maybe God's not in control. Maybe, maybe he doesn't care. Maybe it's not a big deal how I live my life with purity or how I treat people or what I do with my money. Maybe he can't be trusted. Do you see how that type of fretting tends only to evil? When you fret, that it means you're not taking God seriously. There's no other explanation because if you took God seriously, you would not fret. Why wouldn't you fret? Read it. If you took God seriously, look at verse 9. For all evildoers will be cut off. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he'll not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. See, when we choose to fret because of evildoers, we become a sitting duck for thinking God is not going to be taken seriously, what his promises aren't taken seriously, that he's not going to bring judgment. But the fact of the matter is he is. And when we take him seriously, we can be patient and we can wait for his judgment to come. So fret not and do not get angry. Now, how do we do this? How do we not grow anxious or envious or angry? Look at verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees his day coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring the to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their swords shall enter their own heart, however, and their bows shall be broken. 
See, contrary to what we might expect, Psalm 37 shows us that when the wicked plot against the righteous and when they gnash their teeth at the righteous, the Lord doesn't yell and shout and have a temper tantrum. He doesn't feel threatened, nor does the Lord ignore them, nor does the Lord let them get away with it. But what does he do? He laughs. Why? For he sees that their plotting and their fury is going to lead to nothing but self-destruction. He knows that while the wicked protest and plan and plot to stumble the righteous, to capture and trap the righteous, and they believe they're going to conquer, the only trap they set is for themselves. Verse 15, their sword shall enter their own heart. Their bows break. One commentator said, you know when a bow breaks in battle, It's when it pierces a body and it goes straight through and it hits bone and it breaks and it shatters or it breaks when it's already gone through the body and in order to get it out, they have to break it to pull it out both ends. In other words, the wicked fall into their own trap. And that's not just as a possibility, it's as a certainty. It's as if they've already pierced themselves and the bow has to be broken in order to take it out. And so in summary, fret not. Contrary to what it looks like, the wicked won't get away with a thing. He says, don't stress out about the progress the wicked seem to be making. For the Lord laughs and he scoffs at them. How does this apply? First, there's two ways, but first, if you want to learn how not to fret, you have to learn how to see the futility of the wicked. And second, you have to develop a sense of humor, a holy humor. Do you see the folly and the futility of the wicked? You won't be effective at fighting against anxiety and envy and anger unless you see the utter futility and folly of the wicked. I've been reading articles about how angry people are that we have these conservative judges that are going to save babies. And they're so angry at these Republicans that have done this wicked thing. But I think back to how these conservative judges got there. And it's because those who wanted to stop it removed the filibuster. The only reason why they're there. And that's just one example of how God is constantly frustrating the work of the wicked. Secondly, listen, some things are so ridiculous, it's not worth getting into an argument about. Have you, ever, have you ever been talking or in a situation where you're like, this isn't even worth arguing over? Fretting about the progress of the wicked is one of those things, if we're to take Psalm 37 seriously. It's not worth thinking about or even arguing about. To do so only pulls you deeper and deeper into their reality that God's not sovereign, he's not good, he's not powerful, and he's not working all things out. And that's like, you know, quicksand. We find ourselves pulled into the very thing we're trying to escape when we try to rationalize and argue too much. Of course they believe that they can live as if God doesn't exist and get away with it, but don't you think that for a second. Not a second. Of course they think that they can mock God, but God is the one that has the last laugh. And so that leads to our second point. Not only do you have to see the futility of the wicked, you have to develop a sense of humor. Sometimes the best balm for a fretting heart is not to focus on your fears or to argue with your fears, but it's actually to identify your fear and mock it. In Harry Potter, 
in the Harry Potter series, the students at Hogwarts are taught about dangerous magical creatures called Bogarts. Bogarts feed on fear. They control you with fear. Now, no one actually knows what a Bogart looks like, not because no one's ever seen a Bogart. People see Bogarts all the time, but Bogarts are shapeshifters. They always take the form of their victim's greatest fear. And so at Hogwarts, the professors teach the children how to defeat a Bogart, how to overcome their ability to control you through fear and anxiety and worry. And do you know how to do it? Not by arguing with them, not by reasoning with them. You learn to frame your fear, which is incarnated in the Bogart who takes on the the shape of your fear. You learn to frame your fear in the most ridiculous light. And so one of the One of the wizards is afraid of Professor Snape, and so he pictures Professor Snape in a very ugly dress with a fruit hat on top, right? And then the Bogart, right, can't abide being mocked, and he flees. In a similar way, God teaches believers that to overcome their fears, their anger, their envy of the wicked, sometimes the best way to do that is not by arguing, but by teaching you to see that wickedness, that evil you fear, that the wrongdoers that seem to be getting away with stuff that you envy, to see that in its most ridiculous light. See, the futility of the wicked is that they will never have the last laugh. Life always catches up to the wicked because God is just and good, and he cannot abide the wicked. And though the wicked plot and plan and protest, though they set traps, they alone will fall prey to the traps that they set. And when you learn to see the wicked as ridiculous, they lose all power over you to cause anxiety and fear. So that's how not to fret the wicked. Now, Psalm 37 is given to believers to teach them not how to fret and that we need to learn godly satire. And I just, you know, want to give a couple applications of that. If you haven't been introduced to the Babylon Bee, try it out. It's one resource that can really help in this. Uh, a simple pleasure of mine is to, uh, to like flip through their memes of the day. It's, it's honey for the soul. Professional comedians will tell you that, you know, when delivering a great joke, timing is everything. That's why I'm not very funny. I have to work on my timing, right? But the proper pause before a punchline produces laughter that has the power to heal a wounded heart or to pierce a hardened heart. That's the power of humor. But let's not forget that a great joke, even a well-delivered one, can sting, especially if it's told too soon after an injury or an embarrassment. Have you ever had that happen to you? Where someone teases you and it's like, ah, that's too soon. My first date with Marty, we went mountain biking. (laughs) And... I remember trying to impress her, and I had been mountain biking on this trail about a week earlier, and I was able to go down into the stream bed and pop up on the other side, no problem. When we get to the stream bed, and she looked at it, and she says, I don't think we can get across. I'm like, oh yeah, we can get across. Let me show you. Well, it had rained that week, and so I led the way, and she's waiting for me, and I go down into the stream bed. I hit mud, spinning my wheels, went over my handlebars, and cake you know, just landed in three inches of mud, caked all over me. 
And uh, I didn't think it was funny. But that was Marty. (laughs) And she's laughing, but she's trying not to, because this is our first date. And she could not stop herself. And she kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's too soon. It's too soon. Someday this is going to be really funny. (laughs) And of course, she was right. It was funny. I only needed time to pass before my pride could be set aside and I could see my perspective was changed. Some of us, when we read Psalm 37, we are shocked to learn that God mocks the wicked, that he laughs at them. We may even take offense. It's one thing to, you know, laugh at the folly of a young man who tries to impress his girlfriend and ends up in three inches of mud. But it's another thing to mock the wickedness of selfish people who are doing real harm. But the reason that we are uncomfortable is similar to the reason why it's just inappropriate to laugh too soon. And so we need to take hope. There's hope in this. We, we don't need to worry because the kingdom of God is on the move. And as it progresses, we can be confident that the kingdom of God will heal all wounds, will make all wickedness look ridiculous, and will restore our ability to laugh. Because hell, for all of its present fury and defilement, has no hold on heaven, and it cannot rob even a drop of joy in heaven. And so what not, why not, and how not? Fret not because it tends only to evil. Rather than argue your fears of the wicked, getting away with anything, learn to see the ridiculousness of your fears. God laughs at the wicked because despite appearances, they don't get away with anything. He is perfect and he is bringing his shalom. So how about the flip side? What, what do we do? What do we do? Verse 3, trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust him. Verse 7, be still. Wait patiently for him. Instead of focusing on the wrongdoers, notice what the Lord does here. Instead of focusing on the wrongdoers and what they're getting or what they're getting away with, the psalmist says, turn your attention to look to God. Commit your way to him. Look at him and what he's doing. Stop looking at the wicked and what they're getting and what they're getting away with. Befriend faithfulness. Go about doing what God's called you to do. Dwell in the land. Do not feed the chaos by becoming reactive. But be still and wait for the Lord. Trust him and do good. Now, why are we to do this? That's what we're to do, to trust, to delight, to commit, to be still and to wait patiently. But why trust? Why commit our way? Why dwell? Verse after verse of Psalm 37 illustrates, I don't have time to to point to every single verse, but it just illustrates again and again and again and again the rewards of the righteous, those who align themselves to God's truth and to God's ways, the blessings that come are qualitatively better. Let me just read a couple. Verse 16, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless, 
and their heritage will remain forever. That's quantitatively better, not just qualitatively. Verse 19, they're not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. Even the worst time for the righteous, they have a secret abundance. They have what they need. But verse 20, the wicked perish. The enemies of the Lord, they have a glory, but it's a glory like the grass of the pastures. It, it fades so quickly, or it's the glory of like smoke that just vanishes. So the blessings of the righteous are better. Their heritage is lasting, even during hard times. And, and this is not wish projection, right? This is, this is aligning your, reali- your, your perspective to reality. The reality is that the blessings of God and the blessings of the godly are far, far, far better than the benefits enjoyed temporarily by the wicked, no matter how much it may appear to the contrary. So don't be deceived. In this fallen world, the benefits of the wicked are exaggerated like a cheap commercial like a used car salesman but the blessings of the godly are undervalued like hidden treasure the benefits of wickedness are like the glory of smoke poof it's gone but the rewards of the righteous are forever and they're captured look at verse 22 and 29 for those blessed by the lord shall inherit the land but those cursed by him shall be cut off verse 29 the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. This, this is an idea that Jesus spoke about. He took Psalm 37, and this is what was in his mind when he talked at the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So why trust in the Lord and commit your way to him? He is good. He is powerful. He's true to his promises. His blessings are qualitative better. They last longer. The inheritance you get is stable and secure. It will never pass away. And despite appearances to the contrary, the benefits of the wicked are short-lived and self-defeating. They're like smoke. Poof, they're gone. Lastly, how to. How do we do this? How can those tempted to fret and envy find strength to delight and trust and wait upon the Lord? Two things. First, just do it. Be like Nike. Just do it. Part of delighting in the Lord is choosing to delight in the Lord even when you don't feel like delighting in the Lord. And there's certain ones of us among us that are better at this than others. There's certain people on our staff that I just, I learned so much from because I know there's a weightiness in their life. But every day, they choose to live with gratitude to count their blessings, and to choose to rejoice in the Lord. And that is contagious. But as we delight, beware of, the, of what you're delighting in. Am I delighting in the Lord simply because he's delightful, or am I delighting in the Lord to get something else that I want more than the Lord? Because that's how this passage in verse 4, 37, 4, is often read. You know, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, I got many desires, <laughs> And they use the Lord as sort of a genie, as a means to another end, that if I delight myself in the Lord, I get comfort over here. If I delight myself in the Lord, I'll get, I'll get my wife to, you know, respect and love me like I want. Or if I delight myself in the Lord, I'll get my kids to go to bed when I ask, or whatever it might be, right? We make the Lord a means to a greater end. Are we doing that? Or are we saying that we will delight ourselves in the Lord 
because he alone is uniquely delightful. If you want your comfort in the Lord, he can give a comfort like no other. But if you want to use the Lord to make your life comfortable, he is not going to necessarily follow through on that promise. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's because the Lord is the desires of our heart. He alone can satisfy our desire for security and significance and acceptance. He is the beauty that our heart longs for. And if we have him, then we have it all. So only the Lord can fulfill the desires of our hearts. And if he is the desire of your heart, then even when you you have difficulty in this life, you will be satisfied, you will be poised, you will have your desires met because you have him. But there's a second thing I want to apply, which is obviously we have to take steps to obey. We have to take steps to choose to delight ourselves in the Lord, even when it doesn't feel like we can. But that's not where our hope is. If you really want to delight in the Lord, you have to look at verses 39 and 40. Because while we're responsible to choose delight, our hope is not in our choices, but in his abiding goodness and patience and love. Look at verse 39. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. While we are responsible for our choices and our actions to trust rather than to fret, to delight in the Lord rather than to envy the wicked, to wait upon the Lord rather than to give in to despair, while we must take responsibility for our choices and actions, our hope is not in our strength nor our resolve to hope in the Lord. But our hope is in his faithfulness and his strength, his faithfulness to us, his joy that surprises us when we least expect it. He's the one who delivers and saves. He is our refuge. And when we are weak, he is strong. And when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And when we cannot laugh, sometimes we can catch the echo of his contagious laughter by surprise. Our hope is not in our strength. But our hope is in the Lord, who renews our strength and renews our joy. So there's the, the what, the why, and the how. The what not to do, why not, and how not. Let us pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminders that it gives us to fret not when the evil seem to succeed and flourish, when wrongdoers seem to get exactly what we want. Lord, help us to not envy and fret because we remember that you are Lord and you are good and you really are working all things to good. Help us to see the futility of placing our trust in anything but you. Help us to learn a holy humor that is healing to the heart. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that as we delight in you, not as we use you as a means to something else, but as we see you as the one and only one who can satisfy us. And Lord, when we don't have the energy to delight in you, when we're failing to delight in you as we know we should, we pray, Lord, that in your mercy and grace, you would just surprise us, that you would strengthen us, you would hold us in your hand, you would restore our joy in your good timing. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.